the Lord is saying, I can give you all the inward resources that you need in order to live where I've put you. Let's stay on our feet and pray. Father, as we read these words from the Apostle Paul, please help us to see in him the attitudes you want to see in us. And please work them in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do take a seat. Before working here, I worked, as many of you know, in a church in Cambridge where one day one of the parish assistants borrowed and crashed my car, my beloved custard yellow Cavalier, which some of you will remember. I was on a break-even income, I had no savings, and when I was told it would cost £250 to put back on the road, I was stumped. Now, hardly anyone knew about the crash, only I knew it needed £250. But when I woke up the following day, there on my doormat was an unmarked envelope inside which was a folded piece of paper with Matthew 6 verse 8 written on it. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And inside the folded piece of paper was 250 pounds in cash. No idea to this day who it came from, so I could only thank the Lord. Imagine that instead of doing it anonymously, the person had included their name, then obviously I would have wanted to thank them too. The question is, how do you do that? Because on the one hand, if you were to go really over the top, you know, thank you so, so much, really, really, really great, you could end up giving the impression that actually you couldn't possibly live without your car, and that if they hadn't helped you, your life would have ended. On the other hand, if you underdo it, you could sound ungrateful. And then there's the fact that they obviously did it out of their obedience to God, and they wanted it to be seen as his provision. So maybe you then should say to them, you know, I really thank God for the 250 pounds. And the trouble is that's theologically correct, but then it ends up sounding as if you haven't actually got round to thanking them. It's quite delicate territory. And that is the territory that Paul was on at the end of the letter to the Philippians. We're finishing a series on it tonight. Among other things, it was a thank you letter for money that he had been sent by them, and the way Paul phrases it is a remarkable example of what our attitude should be towards money in general, circumstance, sorry, money specifically, circumstances in general, towards what we do and do not have. So would you turn in the Bible to page 1178, page 1178, that will get you to Philippians chapter 1, and let me remind you how Paul begins so page 1178, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul, remember, took the gospel to Philippi and a church was born. He then moved on and they became his supporters, staying in touch with him, praying for him, sending him money. Now turn over to chapter 2 and verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 25, to, to let me remind you of the latest example of that partnership. 
2 verse 25, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So at this point, he's in prison in Rome because of opposition to the gospel. There would have been no prison meals, prison laundry, prison doctor. If prisoners didn't get help from outside, they probably didn't get help. And after a period when they couldn't get anything through to Paul, the Philippians finally managed to get Epaphroditus through. And so, among other things, Philippians is a thank you. The bulk of the thank you comes at the end. So now look on to chapter 4 and verse 9, where we left off last time. Chapter 4 and verse 9 where Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And that is a key verse for applying Philippians to ourselves because in most of it you find that Paul is talking about himself, about what he's going through, about how he's facing it. So it's like a window onto his soul and he's saying, whatever you see through the window, put it into practice. So four headings tonight, four things that you see in Paul and that God also wants to work in your and my life. The first is this. He's content in Christ, whatever his circumstances. Have a look down to verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So that is about Epaphroditus finally getting through. But then comes the delicate territory of phrasing it right. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. In other words, he wants to say thanks for the money without it sounding like his contentment depends on the money. He's saying, it's not that I was discontented when I really lack things, but now I'm contented again because you've changed my circumstances. He's saying, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And at this point, the circumstances are that he's in prison, on trial for his life, for preaching the gospel. Now, I realize the circumstance uppermost in your mind is probably very different. It may be unwanted singleness, or difficult marriage, or broken marriage, or broken home, or not being able to have children, or problems with your children, or unemployment, or uninspiring employment, or old age, or ill health. The question is, what does being content in all those circumstances mean? The key to answering that is verse 13, where he says, I can do everything through him, that's the Lord Jesus, who gives me strength. You must not take that out of context. It doesn't mean I can do absolutely everything through Jesus. For example, pass a driving test first time without ever having had any lessons or even got into a car. In context, it means I can live in every circumstance that God's, that God's puts me in with Christ's help. I can cope, I can find purpose and joy in every circumstance through my relationship 
with Jesus. So being content does not mean being happy about things that are intrinsically not happy, like being in prison. And it doesn't mean uh, you're not allowed to prefer or wish or pray for something else, like getting out of prison. It's saying so long as you're in those circumstances, you need to accept them as where God has put you for now, accept that he has good purposes for putting you there, and trust that he can enable you to live for him there. So take the first example I mentioned of unwanted singleness. Margaret Clarkson was an American author and hymn writer, and as a single woman, she wrote this. Through no choice of my own, I'm unable to express my sexuality in the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage. As a committed Christian, then, I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy. Since I'm now in my 60s at the time of writing, I think that my experience of what this means is valid, and I want to go on record as having proved that for those who are committed to doing God's will, his commands are his enablings. She goes on. My whole being cries out continually for something I may not have. As a Christian, I have no choice but to obey God, cost what it may, and I must trust him to make it possible for me to honor him in my circumstances. And that this is possible, a mighty cloud of witnesses will join me to attest. Multitudes of Christians in every age and circumstance have proved God's sufficiency in this matter. He's promised to meet our needs and he honors his word. If we seek fulfillment in him, we will find it. It may not be easy, but who said the Christian life was easy? Why must I live as a single person? I don't know. But Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. I believe in his sovereignty and accept my singleness from his hand. He could have ordered my life otherwise, but has chosen not to. As his child, I must trust his love and wisdom. That's one example of what it means to be content in any and every situation. It's a contentment that comes from our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It doesn't come without struggle and without tension. And like Paul says, it's something we learn over time, and especially in the times and the ways that we lack things or lose things. Now, I know from experience how people preaching on these first few verses can sound incredibly glib. I think the heart of them is that the Lord is saying, I can give you all the inward resources that you need in order to live where I've put you. And you need to learn to draw on me more to find satisfaction in my love, more to accept my sovereignty and wisdom more. So that's the first thing we 